Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. One of our goals with the recently launched Smart Economy Podcast is to offer series that are dedicated to major topics and trends and interview builders from across the blockchain industry. The inaugural series was focused on DAOs, and the next will hone in on decentralized finance, better known as DeFi. For the DeFi series, we're interviewing some of the most interesting projects that are building within and across blockchain ecosystems today. The DeFi series will feature representatives from the Lyrebird Algorithmic Stablecoin Project, the Elk Finance Cross-Chain Bridging as a Service Provider, the Saffron Finance Risk Tranche and Insurance LP Platform, and the Flamingo Finance Swapping and Staking Platform. Each of these interviews brought a fresh and unique perspective to the various facets that comprise DeFi. So I hope you gain as much insight from these conversations as I did. In the first episode of the DeFi series, I chat with William Song, the founder of Lyrebird. Lyrebird is an algorithmic stablecoin project that was born out of the Neo Frontier Launchpad event in 2021 and launched on Neo Mainnet in April 2022. The protocol establishes a dollar-pegged token called USDL and utilizes a stabilization utility token called LRB. Its model was inspired by that of Terra's, which recently suffered a quote-unquote death spiral and near depreciation of its stablecoin and utility token assets. In this conversation, William and I discussed the elephant in the room up front, Terra's collapse, and how it changes perception of quote-unquote defending the peg, how Lyrebird will adapt and potentially move forward with a fractionally backed stablecoin, the importance of using yield-generating assets for collateral in the Bowerbird lending protocol, using NEO's native Oracle network, and much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with William, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Well, thank you for joining the Smart Economy Podcast. William, how are you doing today? Doing well. Thank you for asking and thank you for having me here. <laughs> yeah. So you're a returning guest to the microphone seat, the interview seat, but you were on a previous podcast where we focused mostly on Neo, the Neo News Today podcast. And we had you come on after the last hackathon, the Frontier Launchpad hackathon. And you had basically designed the concept for Lyrebird and you were going into it. So maybe as just kind of an introduction to somebody who's never met you or heard of you or listened to our podcast, who are you? What's your project? And what has the time been like since the first hackathon that you participated in? Yeah. So my name is William. I'm the founder of Lyrebird. Maybe an easy way to start is if you've heard of the, the Terra Luna fiasco recently, <laughs> Lyrebird is very much the same concept <laughs> of a decentralized stablecoin that's algorithmically pegged. And I actually did get the idea from basically from seeing Terra in its infancy. I think when I first found out about it, it was not the huge news that it is today. It was pretty much getting started. And I was actually aware of a similar project before that called Basis, which was also a similar concept 
it was a little bit more complicated in terms of the way that it was set up. And ultimately, I think BASE just folded because of regulatory concerns. And then there was a revival of it called BASIS Cash, which also had a similar concept. And that actually, I don't think it, would, it could um, maintain its peg. But it seemed to me like Terra had kind of the way to do this in that they very much simplified the concept in saying there's some kind of reserve token that holds value. And then there's a stablecoin token. And the idea is that the reserve token can absorb the volatility of the stablecoin token by giving you arbitrage opportunities whenever the stablecoin token deviates from a desired peg. And so Lyrebird follows exactly that model. There's a Lyrebird token, which is the reserve token that kind of holds the value in the economy. And then there's right now there's USDL, which is the Lyrebird USD token. And so whenever USDL deviates from its intended peg, there's actually is an arbitrage opportunity that you can exploit. So I, ha- I first had this idea around, I think it was a little before the summer of last year when I saw that Frontier Hackathon was being launched. And what I thought was very good was that Neo had a, an inbuilt Oracle. And I think with other chains, this is actually one of the biggest concerns in that if you don't have something like Chainlink that's actually plugged in to your chain, you don't have a way to get data into your project. And so this was one of the great things about Neo, which I thought was that you know someone like me could just come in and then plug into the Oracle. And as long as you have a, a robust price feed, you could actually implement this at least a very simplified version in a matter of a month. And so that's what I did. And I was very lucky that Lyrebird did well in the Frontier Hackathon. And after that, with NGD support, I was able to push the project forward to launch, which was, was during an interesting time. I think when LRV launched, things, things looked great. I was like on cloud lines. And then I'm like, okay, so we'll, we'll see how stable it is for like two weeks and then launch USDL. And then we launched USDL and then everything went... <laughs> <laughs> of downhills from there. But yeah, so that was an interesting time. One, because I got so much <laughs> real world experience of running the arbitrage bots than I thought I'd get in a month. <laughs> so that's good because they work. But yeah, the other thing is that I think it was early enough that I think right now we don't have too much USDL in circulation other than the Genesis, I guess, nine and a half million that probably going to be burned at this point. We have about 200,000 that are in circulation, which is not a very large amount. And so what this gives us is a lot of flexibility to really think about how we should approach this going forward. Because I think every algorithmic stablecoin must be thinking the same thing right now, which is Terra had such a big economy at the time of its collapse. And the whole thing was predicated upon the fact that if you have enough base demand, and I think one thing actually that didn't go as they originally said it would be was that the base demand wasn't natural economic activity, which is things like payments, right? One of the original things that was pitched for Terra was something called Chai, which is a payments network. And that I think was completely overshadowed by Anchor, which is, as you mentioned, Dylan, it's a little bit more leveraged. And so I think the baseline demand didn't really exist as much as they would have liked it to. But at the same time, I think at this point, since there was such a large collapse, it is irresponsible for anyone who's running an algorithmic stablecoin to just say, well, like, we'll try the same thing, but it might be different because we'll do things better. I think really the fundamental thing is that now you can't really say if we have enough base demand, this death spiral won't happen. And so I think what everyone has to be thinking about now is given that the death spiral can happen, we kind of put in prevent, I guess it's a little bit different now since you can't just say we can try to prevent the death spiral because everything seems to be going right until it didn't. And so it's really hard to tell what that point is going to be. But I think you can say, 
we can assume that this will happen at some point and we need to deal with it now. So if it does happen, how do we recover? I think that's probably going to be the question that most people have. Because the issue with the death spiral, I don't think is necessarily the initial DPEG. It's that it's a cascading effect. It's kind of like there's a positive feedback in that if more people sell out, then now your reserve token gets devalued more. And then now you're panicking more because nothing's backing your stablecoin tokens. And so I think at least what I'm thinking right now about is not necessarily how to stop the DPEG in the first place. At least from what I've seen at the moment, it seems like it might not be possible to always hold the peg, but maybe to think about how to come back without completely spiraling into oblivion. So those are the <laughs> initial thoughts coming out of this week. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there and yeah. a lot of uh, different threads to pull. I guess kind of the first thing that kind of popped into my mind while you were just brain dumping your experience and what it's been like for a month old stablecoin project <laughs> that has arguably been around in the most epic time for stablecoins ever. It's funny that purportedly Doquan had a an alt Anon account that was associated with Basis and Basis Cash, and that itself did not take off. And the founders were Anon, whereas Terra was very much Doquan in the public space. Like it or not, he was out there trolling people sometimes, sometimes being brash in the way he answered. But that protocol ended up being worth tens of billions of dollars. And this was from a non-Anon founder. Right. Now, you yourself are doxxed. I think you have put in a lot of care into making sure that everything is done all I's are dotted, T's are crossed, and everything's done in a regulatory compliant manner. So what's your perspective on a stablecoin project and its founder being Anon versus being doxxed? And is there any sort of relationship between the two towards the viable success of the project? That's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about it. I think there is some level of personal responsibility that comes with being doxxed because I think what everyone thinks of when, well, what a lot of people think of in crypto is you put your money into this dog token or whatever, and then, you know, the, the founder just pulls liquidity and then takes off with their money. And so that's a lot harder if you're dogs. But stable coins, I think, or at least in this particular case, I actually don't know if it would have made too much of a difference because I guess the belief is really in more of like how the protocol works rather than the founder like himself or herself. and even right now, I think if you look at the proposals that are coming, the founder is actually not coming to the rescue by trying to rally funds or using own personal funds. It's really just, well, like, we'll fork it and then we'll, we'll see what happens from there. I think what maybe makes more of a difference is kind of how things are presented and how things are advertised. Because I think one of the issues was that Anchor, I think, I don't know if it really called itself a savings protocol or a lending protocol, but I think the tagline was better savings. And this is actually where I think maybe some kind of regulatory oversight is necessary because if a regular person sees better savings, 20% interest, they're not going to think, you know what, like, there's this death spiral that could happen and then your 20% could go to zero. <laughs> 20% of zero is still zero, right? <laughs> and so maybe it's kind of going a little bit off topic from your original question, but yeah, I think... I think the docs part helps with people being maybe less brash, maybe not in this case, but 
generally, because you know that there's personal responsibility that you have to have for the project. But I think in general, it's, I think one of the more important things is that you have to make it clear to the people who are getting involved that there is a risk that you may not be aware of. Like even the founder may not be aware of because this is a very new space and that you can't really guarantee things, right? Like you can say, we think this should work, but there's no guarantee that it'll work. And I think the biggest issue is that once a lot of retail people start getting involved, they might not know this. And that's probably where a lot of the damage comes in because if you've been in this space for a long time and you know what the risks are, like you probably don't put in everything and you probably have some kind of something in your head that says, okay, 20% like this is not sustainable. Whereas now if it's going mainstream and you're just hearing about this, it just seems like, oh, it's programmable money. Like I can make more money from this. And I think that's really where people have to be careful. Yeah. I mean, even being a quote unquote crypto veteran now after being a part of the class of 2017 and having watched even stable coins on NEO popped up in, in fall. I don't want to name any names, but Lyrebird isn't the first stable coin on NEO. You know, you kind of, I kind of had an understanding of what the issues may or may not be, but it just seemed like Terra was working. It just seemed like everything was going so great. So I know that this is a very early, early days. We still don't even have the whole picture for a total comprehensive postmortem. But what are maybe some things that you saw arise that might have started causing red flags? Like, for instance, in the time since, I've heard theories that UST being on multiple chains made it so that people could liquidate on other chains and it wasn't the Terra chain burning the UST and minting Luna. So you weren't redeeming on the Terra chain. I've also heard theories around LFG's purchase of Bitcoin made this potential attack possible because there were two markets to manipulate at this point. Then there's just also regular risk associated with an algo stablecoin that just might depeg on its own, despite the fact that everything was working so well up until it wasn't on Terra. So maybe what are just your early perceptions of lessons that can be learned and maybe applied to Lyrebird in its infancy? Yeah. So full disclosure, this is personal opinion, not financial advice. And also I may not be the, the most educated person on this topic. I think one of the things that was an issue was Bank promising 20% returns. And this is pretty different from most other protocols in which even if you have a stable yield, the stable yield actually, I think Aave has a stable yield, but that's usually lower than the variable yield. And it also rebalances over time. So it actually is based on the amount of borrowing that's done. And so that I think is a much more sustainable model because with Anchor, you know that it's being propped up essentially by VC funds. And so it's kind of like a game of musical chairs in which the chairs keep disappearing. And at that point, you know that people are probably going to be exiting USD because one of the biggest reasons why USD was so successful was because people came for the 20% returns. And so there's always that question of when you get rid of that and it goes to variable rates, what actually is making the variable rates so much higher than other protocols? And I think there wasn't anything that was necessarily making the variable rate higher than other protocols. And so you always have this in the back of your mind, like at some point, people are going to exit and that is not going to be gradual. It's going to be at a particular point because that's when, you know, you, either you go to variable rates or you go to variable rates and then borrow rate goes down and then now you're earning next to nothing on your yields. And so that I think was something that probably could have been 
done differently because that, you know, like with an algorithmic stablecoin like uh, UST, I think you have to make sure that things change gradually rather than all at once. And even if there was, I'm assuming this was an attack, but even if it wasn't an attack, you already have the single point in which people are going to be running to exit the stablecoin at once. Another thing that I think was probably a misstep was purchasing Bitcoin reserves. Because if you do purchase Bitcoin reserves, you have to over collateralize because Bitcoin is very highly correlated with every other crypto asset that you have. And so I think if you do that, you kind of have to follow the DAI model in which you make sure that your Bitcoin reserves are, let's say, like 150 to 200 times or 200% of the stablecoin reserves that you're trying to back. Because there is always a chance, even then, it's not. 100% safe because if Bitcoin drops like 70% in a day, then you might not be able to back all of your holdings. But yeah, here I think it was multiple times worse because if you try to use that Bitcoin to uphold your peg, now you're selling Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin crashes more, which means your correlated asset also drops more. And so, yeah, I think if they were going to go down the Bitcoin route, they had to ensure, like, I, I think even the, like the original plan, if it were, like, if it came to fruition, they would have had, I think, $10 billion worth of Bitcoin backing like $18 billion of USD, which is still not super successful. I don't know if you've heard of USDD, which is the Tron version of exactly the same thing. <laughs> but it's, it's very funny because I thought Lyrebird launched at a bad time, but there are two other ones that also launched at a really bad time. One is USDD, which is Tron's exact same thing, except that I think they have like $300 million of USDD in circulation backed by like. $10 billion of Tether. So they can do the same thing, except they can actually kind of support the peg all the way down because you have more USDT than you have the USDD. And I think USN, which is, um, which one was this? This is the one that's on Mir, which I'm not as familiar with, but essentially the same model. They have algorithmic peg and some kind of large reserve. But yeah, I think probably if you wanted to do things differently, your backing reserve would have to be uncorrelated or negatively correlated with what you're trying to protect. So I would have probably done something like USDC instead. Yeah. And then I, I think the other thing maybe also try to spur organic demand growth of things like payments, which I think actually was the original plan. Um, it's just that maybe Anchor was a little too successful. From what little information I've gathered, Chai was only as successful as its regional adoption. And I believe it was South Korea, which was the only country that Doe and team were able to kind of get regulatory approval for people to just pay at in-store places like uh, grocery stores and haircuts and uh, just like in-good services. And in a podcast I was listening to maybe six months ago, he was just basically saying like, at that point, you have to have an entire legal department for each country you go into because it's a totally different beast. And that's how they kind of like shifted to UST and then providing services on Anchor. And what I kind of thought was supposed to be the beauty of the Terra ecosystem is that you're going to have all these additional protocols building on top of it, like Mars Protocol and whale protocol to ensure the peg was kept. So you were going to have all these derivatives that were building on top of it. And it was going to kind of like spur this flywheel that once it got off the ground, then it was going to be like a perpetual motion machine, Right. which those don't exist in real world. They don't exist in the crypto world yet. 
But that was kind of like what I thought the narrative was supposed to be. So moving forward, is Lyrebird going to be examining different models of maybe over-collateralization, maybe even taking the approach that DAI does, which is holding portions of another stablecoin in its treasury? What are some potential areas that uh, an algorithmic stablecoin might look forward to now for other forms of something that backs it, whether it's algo, collateral, real-world assets. What does this look like? Yeah, so this is basically what I've been thinking about the most over the past week, maybe to give a little bit of context. I'll start with something called the stablecoin trilemma, which is basically there are kind of three things that you want to achieve with a stablecoin, and generally you can only achieve two of them. The three things are decentralization, peg stability, and capital efficiency. So if you have decentralization and peg stability, you have something like DAI in which you have over collateralization. And so it's not capital efficient, but as we've seen, DAI held its peg very well over a week <laughs> for that as well. If you have decentralization and capital efficiency, then you have algorithmic coins like UST. And here, it's very obvious that the peg stability is missing. <laughs> and then you have peg stability and capital efficiency, which is a lot of the coins that we're familiar with, like Tether and USDC. And so there, I think you get kind of one-to-one -one capital efficiency. But I guess if you really want decentralization, you can't have it in this, in this world. There's actually something that's a little bit like cross between, I guess, um, centralized and algorithmic called fractional reserve. And so this is the one that I've been looking into the most. The one that's most successful is called Frax. The one that's the least successful is called Iron. <laughs> Supposedly, I think Iron kind of forked the code base of Frax and then did a lot of other things wrong. I think the one main issue that they had was that their Oracle prices updated very, very slowly. I think it was maybe a, like a time-weighted average over the past 15 minutes or so. And so basically with these fractional reserve coins, you essentially say, you can set the fractional reserve ratio, let's say the collateralization ratio 75%. That means if you want to mint a dollar, let's say one frax is $1, you want to mint one frax, you put in 25 cents of like some other token, and then you put in 75 cents worth of, let's say, USDC. And so you always know that 75% of your capital is backed by a centralized coin. This is exactly the same for iron, except I think the issue was that you could keep redeeming and then buying and then selling and keep doing that cycle because your Oracle price is always going to be higher than the price that you're going to buy at. So that was an issue for iron. But for Frax, I think things are very interesting. Right now, I think there's no real way that it can lose its peg, partially because they have so much liquidity on curve. Because I think I think they actually have more liquidity on curve than is a kind of outstanding free float. And so even if you were to take 100% of the, like, the outstanding float, you actually couldn't move it by even more than a penny. But one thing that I was thinking about is to kind of modify this idea because let's say you want to prevent a death spiral. I don't actually think fractional reserve prevents this. I think it slows things down because instead of saying, here's UST, it's backed by Luna. If Luna goes to zero, you're kind of screwed. What you're saying is, here's Frax. It's backed by, let's say, 75% USDC and 25% Frax shares. Frax shares goes to zero, you have 75 cents. So it's a much better proposition because you don't end up with zero, you still have 75 cents. But I think 
if you look at the human psychology, it's kind of, if you're panicking, you're panicking because I think it's, it still kind of applies because let's say frac shares right now will give you 20 cents instead of 25 cents, but everyone else is panicking. So you think if I act five minutes from now, it's going to give me 15 cents. And then if I act tomorrow, it's going to give me five cents. And so there, I think if you do expand enough, you still have the same problem as just dampen. And so something that I've been thinking about is what happens if you kind of give up on defending the peg right away? This is kind of, in a way, I think it's kind of like providing liquidity to liquidity pools like on Flamingo, in which you can have impermanent loss in that if something moves, uh, let's say if one coin goes up a lot and the other goes down a lot, you have impermanent loss. But let's say if you put in enough incentives for it to come back to the equilibrium, if you don't panic and take out right now, and you kind of have this hope that it can come back, then you actually don't have to make that loss permanent. And so the idea here is, let's say you have a collateralization ratio, let's say it's 50%. And so whenever someone converts, let's say a dollar's worth of LRB into USDL, you mint $1 of USDL, but then now you go out and purchase 50 cents worth of, let's say, like right now, I think really in the ecosystem, the only option is wrapped USDT, but I think Flamingo is working on getting other centralized stable coins on board. So then what happens is you have this reserve, let's say if you have $100 outstanding of USDL, then you also know that the Liarbird smart contracts have $50 of, let's say, USDT, the packet. What I wanted to experiment with is instead of saying every redemption gives you 50 cents of LRB and 50 cents worth of um, USDT, the first $50 that redeem only get LRB, but the last $50 you can actually redeem one for one with Tether. And so the idea here is that you're still relying on the algorithmic pegging for the initial descent. And so I think in a market crash, you, you're basically giving up the peg. I think it probably shouldn't go below 50 cents in that case, because if someone sees that it's 50% back and it's trading at 30 cents, expected value says that you know if you buy this up and then if something happens and you could probably be cents worth the value, but I think the what I'm trying to do is make sure that right now, if you have a death spiral, the later you sell, the worse it is, because you think that LRB is going to devalue more and more. But here I'm trying to make sure there's kind of a reversing point in which if people do that, and then suddenly the, the supply of USDL becomes half of what it is now, you can actually redeem for the full dollar. And so it reverses it. And so... For that to happen, I think you probably will have maybe even a prolonged period in which USDL is trading below a dollar. But what I want to make sure is that at some point, people know that there's a mechanism that kicks in, that if they don't sell right now, they could get their full dollar back. And so if that stops the selling, then that actually could give the protocol a chance to recover. And of course, I don't think this guarantees that it'll recover. Um, I think there could be a corner case of a steady state where you're kind of stuck in between. like <laughs> You're not yet at a dollar, but you're also not at 50 cents. This still has to be worked out, but it's generally the direction that I'm looking at because for me, I think the allure of stable coins, algorithmic stable coins, it's really the capital efficiency aspect. And I think that's one of the things that UST did very, very well, which is if you have capital coming into the system, you want to make sure that you can distribute that well. And I think UST did that extremely well. And then kind of going out the other way didn't work so well. Of course, this 
kind of gets rid of the decentralization aspect because the protocol itself can be decentralized, but I guess your reserves are still centralized in a way. But that's kind of the thought at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it almost seems like centralized reserves would have saved, that weren't Bitcoin, would have saved a lot of headaches for Terra users, UST holders. Uh, a lot of people held on to the end. And I mean, you've you've spoke about this since day one, that it's the faith in the protocol being able to survive is what actually makes it survive. So once you lose that kind of mental fortitude and faith in the protocol, then it's like sugar going into water. It'll just disappear right? because there's nothing holding it up anymore. So it's kind of interesting that you launched during this time. You said you've probably, I would venture to guess you've probably got a year's experience in the past month with your arbitrage bot and seeing just everything start to work together. So despite the fact that the room was on fire and we were the dog drinking coffee saying everything is fine, what are some of the lessons you've learned from the month that Liarbird's been live? Because you have been building this out for two, almost three quarters, and then you launched it. So a lot of thought went into this, a lot of mental exercises. What has played out? How do you think the protocol has fared well during times of stress? What are just some lessons learned in the first month, despite the fact that this probably wouldn't have been repeatable in any other time frame that you launched? One of the first ones actually was that if you tell the community what's going on, they're very supportive because we did run into a couple of issues. There was a time when Oracle calls weren't working for a little bit. We also had a little bit of downtime on our, like our backend servers. Those are distributed now across two regions. But if you just tell them like, hey, we're having issues, really sorry. People aren't going to come to you and say, why did I invest in this? You lied to me. A lot of them will just say like, thank you for letting me know. And then just kind of keep watching. Another thing I would say is that it's, especially in cryptocurrencies, I think a lot of people want explosive growth. Uh, like they want 2000% returns right away. But I think one of the things that's really helping us right now is that even from the beginning, we were planning on kind of ramping up slowly to make sure that we have the time to make sure that things are right. And that was very helpful because when we launched, when we did, it was much larger. I think we actually would have had a lot of problems trying to defend the pegs because we didn't have so much liquidity at the time. And so trying to be a little more, maybe not slow, but more deliberate in terms of how you intend to grow, that I think was it wasn't necessarily something that we planned for this, but um, it ended up being very helpful. I guess one more thing this, I guess I, I think we could have done a little bit more in terms of gas savings on the protocol calls, like contract calls, which we didn't. And initially, I think the thought was that, well, like these aren't that common operations, so it doesn't really matter so much, but it, it does seem to add up. Maybe that's something that we're going to look into going forward. It seems to me that at least... Uh... The amount of USDL that was released for the FLM USDL pool has doubled in size. So are you surprised? Are you not surprised? Is, is it just about as even as you thought it would be with people creating USDL? How do you think that demand is growing? Do you think it's organic? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? A little bit of that pool was like the team funds. It's maybe like, I guess we put in about 30 to 40K as like yeah, actual users. So it's a little bit lower than I would have hoped. But at the same time, I think, I don't think anyone would really looking to put money into pools at that time because we launched the day of when basically pegging started. Like right now, I think it should probably be a little bit speculative in the sense that we're working on getting 
real life demand for USDL. But until you know that that exists, basically you're kind of just betting that the protocol will do well. And so given that, I think we're very happy with the interest that people have showed. But I think really it's now on Liarbird to make sure that you kind of show like, this is what we can do. Like, first of all, like one thing that we have to prove is there's something that a Liarbird like protocol can do better than just a centralized stablecoin. Because if there isn't, there's no value proposition. If that's the case, you should really be saying, well, let's try to bring in one of the big central stable coins and then call it a day. I do think that there is a lot more capital efficiency to be had with algorithmic stable coins. And that's primarily why I'm looking at this fractional reserve method. You know, like if you do fractional reserve, I think let's say you do like 50% reserve, then the other half you can actually do much more efficiently than if you were to have completely centralized stable coin. But I do think that the protocol now needs to prove like, this is why it's useful. Also tell them, you know, you could have this death spiral thing. We think we figured it out, but just keep this in mind. And yeah, I think now it's time for us to really develop something that brings in a lot of demand for USDL. Yeah, I'd be curious to see what level of adoption a Frax-like mechanism actually has. If we're just speaking anecdotally from personal experience, like I never used MakerDAO because I don't want to over-collateralize. I used UST because I can get so much more purchasing value with way less collateral put up, Right, uh, which is why I think it was so attractive to begin with. Now, I, I do want to like kind of pull on this thread that what I thought UST had going for it was that it was the basis for this burgeoning ecosystem where there's going to be all these derivatives and mirrored assets and protocols building on top of it, building that flywheel. Now, I think... Liarbird kind of pulled a little bit of those strings. For the recent hackathon, you built Bowerbird. And Bowerbird is a lending protocol. Yep. And also another Australian bird. Yeah. <laughs> which I kind of want to like pull on in a little bit. But what are kind of the basic principles of Bowerbird and how is a Liarbird LRB token holder or USD token holder going to benefit from this new product that you just recently put together for the hackathon? Yeah. So just a bit of context, Bowerbird, the name comes from, I don't think it's fully an Australian bird. It's like, like Papua Australian bird. But yeah, they build these things called bowers, which I had originally confused for nests, but they're not. It's kind of a mating ritual. Like the males will build the most beautiful structure that they can. And some subspecies, like they really like the color blue for some reason. So they'll find like blue bottle caps and put them in their bowers and stuff. But you know, I'm trying to push this narrative of DeFi on Neo is going to be birds. And it kind of was a joke in the beginning because I thought flamingo, like that's a bird. But I do think there's value in having some kind of unified identity so that if someone sees a bird, they can think, oh, that's probably a Neo protocol. But yeah, bower bird is pretty much inspired by Compound and Anchor. The technical details, they mostly come from the Compound model. The only difference is that like, it doesn't have multiple markets for multiple tokens. The lending market really is only for USDL, and that's going to be the Anchor model. And so the idea is that you can put in collateral. And right now, we're only looking at BNEO because collateral needs to satisfy a couple of things. One is that it has enough market cap so that it's not super volatile. And right now in the Neo ecosystem, I think BNEO is the only one. Hopefully it grows enough in the next couple of years that we have enough assets that you could collateralize. 
The second is that Vimeo is a yield earning asset. And I think this is really the key to having high yield protocol, because if you try to promise high yields, people are going to ask, where's that coming from? And if you can explain to them, this is where it comes from, then it makes sense, right? Like people won't be you know, running for the exits when they feel like the funds are drying up. And like the cool thing about BNEO is that it also kind of, like it lets you explain to people like what NEO is and how you, you can earn gas by voting. And so let's say you deposit BNEO and your loan to value is set to, let's say 75% minimum, which means that people are probably going to do more than that. Set it at the minimum, the next tick, let's say 5%, and then you get liquidated. You don't want that. And so let's say, for argument's sake, most people deposit 200% collateral. I think NEO yields about like 9 to 10% in voting gas. And so if you do that, and let's say you were at, we do really well and we're lending out 80% of the US deal that's in the system. What that means is, let's say, so you have BNEO, you have 200%, and then 80% of that, so it's 160%. So you're earning 160% of 9 to 10% yields, which is pretty high, right? Like 15%. And you know that that's coming from somewhere because people are voting and people are getting the gas. And then the protocol can now convert that gas into USDL automatically on Flamingo. And so what I really wanted to do was kind of unify a lot of existing projects that are on NEO. So here we're looking at BNEO. Hopefully if, if people have NEO and they can't collateralize it, but then BNEO you can, then, well, like, why not convert my NEO into burger NEO, increase usage there. If we're regularly converting gas yields into USDL, that's increasing the transaction count of Flamingo. That's another plus. And then finally, I think this is a very good way to try to increase the yield of the usage of USDL. Because I think what people would really be looking for in a stable coin is where can I use this? And so one of the easiest ways to, to get this interest is by introducing a DeFi lending protocol. So those are the kind of goals that we had. And we're pretty excited to see what the judges think of it. Yeah. One of the interesting things in watching your video is that it seems like users can liquidate those who have taken out loans. So is this something that's going to be eventually replaced by some sort of arbitrage bot that does this? Or is like Joe and Sally going to have to scour the Bowerbird loans and look for anything that uh, has exceeded its loan to value ratio? Because this this also provides kind of like almost like a, a weird antagonistic zero sum game for ecosystem participants, right? <laughs> yeah, so I think the liquidations have to be automated to some degree, and similar to RB, if we could provide something that kind of looks for under collateralized loans, we will. <laughs> so the only thing that's a little bit more complicated from a technical point of view here is that. Liquidations require Oracle calls because you can't just say, hey, I'm going to liquidate this because you need to know at this particular moment, is this position under collateralized? And it could be by the time you call it. And then maybe if the Oracle call comes back and says, oh, actually, Neo went up 1%, so it doesn't work anymore, then you shouldn't be able to liquidate that. But yeah, one thing that we do need to work on is trying to basically have a catalog, which loans are at risk of collateralized or being under collateralized and then making sure that these bots can find them. But yeah, I think typically there's kind of two ways to do it. One is just anyone who finds it under collateralized position, you basically send over the money to 
liquidated. And then whoever gets there first, you kind of get the first chunk. And then I think there are also auction methods in which whenever there is an under-collateralized position, you open up an auction and say, hey, like, does anyone want a piece here? Like, going once, going twice. I thought that the, the anyone can kind of come like a vulture is an easier model. Uh, one, because it's much easier to automate. And two, because I think it's an easier model for like severe market downtrends that just happen suddenly. So yeah, I think similar to MakerDAO, I think whenever you have an over-collateralized protocol, it's like the over-collateralization is only good to the extent that let's say your liquidators, I don't know, like let's say they work in like one minute intervals. If your asset actually crashes like 70% within that one minute interval, you are still at risk because if you are only 200% over-collateralized and then it crashes 70%, then well, suddenly like, this liquidator is only paying, you know, like not enough to actually get your collateral ratio back on track. And so those are the reasons. What was the name of the project in Terra? Was it Kajara? Something like that. It would act as a market for um, people to bid against this uh, soon-to-be liquidated collateral right. and purchase it at a discount. And it sounds like Vulture would be a nice bird name theme <laughs> for this to be ported to the Neo ecosystem. It's true. <laughs> Does the impacts of the uncertainty that Terra reintroduced to us as uh, algo stablecoin projects can have no matter how big they are, does this kind of put Bowerbird's development on hold? Are you waiting to hear feedback from the judges? What is kind of your perspective on this moving forward? Do you have to go back to, to the beginning of the, of the board and re-examine Lyrebird? Yes, I think Bowerbird will probably continue in its current form. I do think that it's probably going to be put on hold until Lyrebird moves to the, the fractional reserve model, just because you know Bowerbird is meant to bring more interest and more demand for USDL, which means that we kind of need to make sure that USDL is it has a defense mechanism against that spiral before we do that. But in some sense, I, I kind of like bear markets, not in the way that people lost money, but in the sense that it gives you a really good time to build things out. Because I think in bull markets, people are always wondering, like, all of these other coins are doing so well. Why are you not releasing things right away? And people in software development will always say, you need time to make sure that the product is actually good. Because, you know, one of the things that could happen is that your, I guess your stability model doesn't work as you expect, which seems to be the case with Terra. But the other thing that could happen is you could have a bug and people could exploit it. That's actually much worse because you could have actually had a very good model and then it just didn't work out because you were not careful enough to implement the right way. And so nothing really changes in terms of development other than that the like, it's not 100% for certain, but I think USDL is going to move toward the fractional reserve model that we talked about today. And so that is really the first priority. And then Bowerbird is going to be next. Yeah, and I just kind of want to hammer home again something that's really cool about the value prop that the Bowerbird offers is that its yield is going to be derived already from a yield producing product, whereas the yield for UST was derived from LFG funding this pool until the flywheel effects took off. So what are some other ways that you envision yield being derived beyond just the gas distributions from the, the underlying BNEO collateral? What are some other ways that yield will be derived as time goes on and activity is increased? Is it just going to be from 
LRB to USDL minting and burning, or what are some other processes you envision? Oh, you mean for LRB holders or for Bowerbird? For Bowerbird lenders, I suppose. I see. So there will be some interest that is charged to the borrowers, and that's kind of just the, the baseline interest. Most markets have this kind of model in which you have this target utilization ratio, which is, let's say it's like 80%, which basically means that if you have, let's say, 100 USPL in reserve in the protocol, you want to be lending out 80 of those at a time. The reason why it's not 100 is because if it's 100 and then someone wants to pull their deposit, you tell them, okay, look, it's being used, so you can't. So you have to have a secondary market, which it probably still is necessary to have a robust secondary market for um, redeeming your like BUSDL, which is kind of like a deposit slip for USDL. But you do want to make sure there's that buffer so that people can actually withdraw. And so there will be some kind of variable rate that is charged to borrowers and that is given directly to lenders. What I'm most excited by is other tokens that could have some kind of yields growing on the, in the NEO system. As I mentioned, DNEO is the target right now because highest market cap and it also has very stable yields. I think Flamingo could be the next one because it's a little bit more complicated. Flamingo, you could enter the Flund, which is, I really like it because like what we've been talking about, the fees don't come out of, like, or the, the APY doesn't come out of thin air. It's actually capped from transaction fees of every pool on Flamingo. And so let's say if you could stake or if you could put your FLM as collateral in the system, it's a little bit more complicated because with BNEO, you just say every time you want to get gas, you say, hey, give me gas. And then the next block, you have your gas. But with FLM, there's, there's a lot more going on in terms of how the fees are generated and compounded. And so you would have something like, let's say 80% of the FLM that you have in reserve goes in the flood so that if people want to withdraw their collateral, then there's some kind of buffer. And then if it, you know, let's say people do that and you get to 90%, then you kind of want to exit some amount of your flood to have a buffer again. But I think the flood APR right now is like 100% almost. So if you could give that to the lenders, that's actually amazing. Initially, the thought was also to have LRP staking be a part of this. But I've been having second thoughts about that because I think one of the other issues with USD's downfall is that UST and Luna are very correlated in terms of at least if they both move downward. And so if your Luna is your collateral and UST is falling and your Luna is being liquidated, it actually accelerates in a lot of ways the, um, like the, the death spiral effect. And so having seen that, I think maybe it's actually not the best idea to have correlated assets, you know, your collateral assets. So Probably going to scrap that part, but BNEO and FLM are definitely in the plans. That was a kind of wild lesson or scenario to watch play live where people are dumping their UST because they don't have faith in it anymore. And that's pushing the price down. And then also the way that UST worked is that when UST is sold, more Luna is created and people were also selling that. Right. So you had this depressing of two separate assets that just... It's funny, a lot of people were who were right about Terra are being vocal now, and maybe a handful were vocal over the past year, but this was really like the worst case scenario that could have ever played out, and uh, it played out spectacularly. Right. So we're kind of 
wrapping up, but I wanted to pull your ear a little bit on, you mentioned Oracle calls, and this is one of the first projects that I think is, a lot of projects are starting to use Neo's Oracles, but you have two separate projects now where you've been pulling on Oracle calls. So how does a native Oracle network that's built through Neo, what are the pros and cons to having something that's native versus a chain link that might have more functionality, but isn't specifically like native to a chain? The biggest advantage is that anyone can call it very easily. Basically, you just define a callback function and say, here, Oracle query this endpoint. And then when you come back, pass that data in and call this callback. And so from a programming point of view, it's very, very easy. You do still have to think about how how expensive it is because Oracle calls are not cheap. And the other part is that it doesn't necessarily happen right away. It's typically going to be the next block. So you, you send a request and then the next block is going to have a response, which is not necessarily what a lot of people are familiar with. And so you have to tell them, look, like we made a call and then we have to wait. I think with things like Chainlink, typically the way it happens is that you kind of set these parameters and then say either every X minutes or if the price of this asset changes by more than X percent, you update the data that's on the chain. And so you are kind of reliant on this happening for you. I think there actually, with UST's downfall, there was kind of an issue with, I think some oracles either like no longer reporting prices or either UST or Luna or being late on the, on the prices. And this kind of has to go the, like the cross-chain issue in which you have this kind of havoc that's going on with the main chain and, and all of these wrapped assets are having issues as well. I was actually really hoping to see a project in the hackathon that basically does something like Chainlink in that instead of having every project have to call its own endpoint, what would be great is if you have this central service that says, well, I say central, it's, it's still decentralized, but let's say someone will keep invoking these calls for you and you have to kind of subscribe and keep paying them something so that they keep maintaining these endpoints for you. But um, that gives you a lot more a lot more flexibility and a lot more decentralization, I think, because right now, one of the key centralized parts of Liarbird is the price feed because you know it's, it's still maintained by Liarbird. And so if someone were to come and say, is that decentralized? It's actually no, because you have decentralized Oracle nodes, but they're still querying the same node. Whereas I think if you had this kind of chain link type model, you could make it so that you have multiple price sources and then you just take the median or the mean or whatever. And then you could actually say this is decentralized because it's not a single price feed. You have these kind of trusted sources, and then you're making sure that let's say I don't know, like do the median but take out like the highest and the lowest or something like that. Then it becomes a lot harder for these price feeds to cheat you. You know, we're not a podcast that gives financial advice, so I can't say go buy this token or that token. But something I do feel confident in saying is activating the community to participate in processes. So, you know, I'm a hobbyist. I don't know how to code or develop, but I want to get involved in the Lyrebird protocol. The way I see that happening is maybe by launching and running RB. So could you just share a little bit more about RB? Is it for the hobbyist? Like, can I spin up a bot and start performing arbitrage? Does my computer need to be running 24-7? What kind of like level of expertise do you have to have in order to download and run RB, which of course, helps ensure that the Lyrebird protocol operates smoothly. Yeah. So in terms of downloading and running it, I don't think too much expertise is necessary. You do have to be 
or you do have to learn how to use the command line terminal, which is standard on um, Mac OS and Linux. And on Windows, I think, I'm actually not sure how it would work. Probably PowerShell. The only caveat I have is that one of the things that you really want to be careful with is making your private key secret. And so that's the only part that I would tell people to try to be really, really careful because RB does need to know your private key. And so if it does know your private key, you want to make sure that your operating environment is something that you trust because otherwise someone else could see it as well. Right now, I think it's like a little bit profitable, but not super profitable. And the reason is because the USDL pool is actually not super large. It's about 220K right now. And so let's say you're trying to keep it within 1%, so like 99 cents to 1.01. If you're moving that on a 220K pool versus like a million dollar pool, your expected profits are pretty different. And so right now, I think if you're running it, thank you so much. Um, You're probably not going to be seeing like that much profit. But as we see USDL ramp up, then I think it's going to be a lot more profitable. And then we'll probably see more people join in as well. But yeah, I think there's testnet, USDL, and LRB available as well. It's in one of the announcements that we have. So that's a very good place to get started. There is also a testnet Flamingo link that we have shared somewhere. And so because otherwise people don't really trade on testnet, um, you might have to kind of you know make your own trade and then move the price and then see it come back to equilibrium. Yeah. I'm eagerly following along to see what it is that, I don't want to use the word explode, but shows growth and demand for USDL in the NEO ecosystem. You know, I don't know if this is necessarily like something that Lyrebird has to propagate or if this is just something that naturally comes, but I'm going to be looking forward to following along and seeing this organic growth of USDL. So wrapping up, this is the Smart Economy Podcast. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on what you think the smart economy is. It's a good question. I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. (laughs) Yeah, I think kind of like how technology made a lot of um, like white collar professions more efficient. I wonder if the smart economy is something that it doesn't necessarily do things differently, but make things more efficient. I think one of the things that people like a lot about decentralized systems is that it gives access to everyone instead of just the privileged few. Another thing that I think is probably part of the smart economy is transparency in the sense that like right now you get a lot of protection from institutions like banks, but in a way it's really just, trust me, bro. (laughs) We have these reserves. If something goes wrong, we'll, we'll pay you back. And we do trust them. And I think it's such a big part of the fabric of our society that we trust these institutions. But I think it would be a lot better if we have systems in place that we can trust and that they're independently verifiable. And so I don't necessarily think the smart economy needs to do anything differently other than just make sure that one is they're more efficient, especially a lot of the, the routine tasks that we do that can be automated. And then two is making sure that that we, we rely a little bit less on just trust in terms of what people say and actually verifiable claims that are on chain. I think those are the two things for me. Awesome. Well, if we look a year into the future and you're still around, I think this is the times that battle hardened your project and yourself and your your unwavering faith in what you're building. So congrats so far on making it through the tumultuous storms. I think we have 
a lot more of this being a kind of big topic that people are going to talk about during Tara's postmortem. But I'm excited to continue using and following along Lyrebird and seeing the new products that you released, Bowerbird, and testing those out as well. So I guess congrats on surviving so far. And I hope that you're keeping your head up because this is a product I'm really looking forward to seeing come to life in the NEO ecosystem. I just think stablecoins and lending and borrowing are the beginning of the life flow for L1s these days and DeFi in general. So keep your head up, I guess. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and thank you for having me. This was a very nice experience. I'm super honored to have been able to pull your ear. You introduced me to Tara and Luna just through the mechanisms that you were talking about when you first launched Lyrebird. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's all right. Um, you don't give financial advice, so there's nothing to be to apologize for. But I'm excited to see how you'll build and iterate because I'm of the thought that stablecoins, algo stablecoins, are one day the way that we get out of this kind of fractionalized and fiat currency-like system, and that ultimately it's going to be math that determines the stability of any future currency. But as was shown with UST, we are not there yet, and it's going to continue to take builders to scrape their knees and to iterate and reiterate. So it's really cool to be able to cover a project working on that for Neo News Today. So I'm looking forward to seeing what changes come about and to continue watching the project make strides forward. So thank you for coming on. Uh, and it was awesome to be able to catch up with you again, William. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? It was really great to glean insight from a stablecoin protocol developer and have an objective conversation about recent events. It's apparent that William didn't get scared off by the collapse of UST and the Terra ecosystem but went directly to the drawing board. It'll be interesting to see how Lyrebird implements a fractionally backed system using other forms of stablecoin as collateral. Regarding the upcoming Bowerbird lending protocol, it was really interesting to hear more about the types of assets that will serve as collateral for loans and the criteria that they must generate yield themselves. So I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep NEO News Today in mind when voting for your NEO Council representative as part of NEO's governance process. We appreciate you, and we look forward to catching you next time.